0: This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Welcome back to another episode. This week, I do want to give a trigger warning for you. Um, The Bad Nurse story that we're going to be discussing does contain discussion of death by suicide. So just to warn you of that. The story, though, I will say there are lots of opportunities, I think, for education, which I always love to to be able to to do stories that um, we can bring awareness to a topic and also have opportunities to just educate and inform. So... It's very tragic, very sad, but also I think a lot of you are going to be really shocked um, at the content. I know I was, and so I can't wait to get into talking about this. And then for the good nurse portion, I'm super excited to have, you guys know I love this whenever I can have the actual person that I'm talking about in the good nurse segment on as the guest host, and that's this, this week we're doing that. We have hospice nurse Penny. Hello, Penny. Hi there. Hi there. So good to have you on. I've followed you for a while. You were on the Nurse Blake cruise. I don't, I didn't, we didn't get to cross paths, but Jessica, Nurse Jessica Seitz told me that she saw you. But, so I haven't actually got to meet you in person, but super excited to have you on and get to discuss the story. And then also we're going to discuss all of the great work that you do and bringing awareness to hospice nursing and just educating people and informing people. Super excited to get to talk about that.
1: Thanks. I'm excited to be here.
0: so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and what they pay. Go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile. Are you looking to take your career to the next level? Consider enrolling in the Doctor of Nursing Practice Program at UC Irvine. The program offers a post-master's track for MSN-prepared nurses and a family nurse practitioner track for those with at least a BSN. Their program, of course, is fully accredited, and their graduates are highly sought after by healthcare organizations across the country. If you're ready to take the next step in your nursing career, I encourage you to explore UCI Irvine's DNP program today. Visit nursing.uci.edu to learn more, and of course, We'll put a link on our website and you can access it at goodnursebadnurse.com. So this is the story of Maya Kowalski. I feel like there are several victims in this story, but she's kind of the, the main the victim in, in this story. She's the patient. And so, you know, we call it the bad nurse story, but it's really, it's the segment where we discuss something that a healthcare professional, you know, in general, it could be any, any type of healthcare professional. You know whether it's a misjudgment, you know, mistake, an accident, whatever is it, something that they shouldn't have done. And in this case, it's there is one particular doctor that we're going to discuss. But I feel like the whole system kind of failed this family. But Maya is kind of the central person. She's the the person who uh, primarily where it all where it all starts. She was the daughter of Jack and Beata. Kowalski. Jack was a retired firefighter, another, I consider firefighters kind of being one of us. They're first responders. They generally are, they have medical, some medical knowledge a lot of times, usually some sort of. So he was retired. Beata, she was an infusion nurse. So Beata, Maya's mother, was a nurse as well. So they had struggled to conceive for a long time. And then, of course, when, whenever that happens, you, your, your joy is just through the roof when you finally are able to conceive and have a child. So they had Maya. And then in 2015, Maya started displaying a range of worrying symptoms. So blurred vision, excruciating pain, and some other kind of vague sort of symptoms. They took her to lots of doctors And basically, the doctors were kind of scratching their heads, like, they didn't, they couldn't pinpoint anything. And this is more common than I think a lot of people know that doctors don't know everything. We don't know everything about the human body. We as in our people in the in healthcare, people in our society in general, scientists, people who study the human body and particular system body systems they will tell, be the first to tell you the experts. A neurologist will be the first to tell you that we know very little about the human brain. You know, they think, oh, I, if I go to the doctor and I tell them my symptoms, they will go, this is what's wrong with you. And they will give me something to fix it. But mm-hmm. it's not always yeah. the case.
1: It's often not the case. You know, even in my own life with my own family, I've seen that happen where people have symptoms and they go and have all kinds of tests and tests and tests and still the doctors throw up their hands and say, we don't know what's going on. And I think people get, people who don't work in healthcare get very frustrated by that. I think even people who work in healthcare get frustrated by that. uh, As is is the case in in this story too.
0: We don't give each other enough grace. I think, you know, we, um, sometimes we think we know more than we do. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We think our experiences that the experience that we have we have had is the only one to consider you know we it's so hard and you know, we live in this in these silos a lot of times and we don't it's hard to see from someone else's perspective especially when you have a someone who's in healthcare that has a sick child or that or they're sick and they have to then go be a patient or a family member of a patient it can be challenging on both sides. It can be challenging to the doctor or the nurse who's caring for the patient and obviously for the patient because, you know, if as a mother, if you have a child who's very sick and you take your child to the doctor and you see them making decisions or they're in the hospital and you see the nurse making decisions that you don't think you would make as a nurse or you as a doctor would not make that decision or, you know, as a nurse that the way you've always seen something diagnosed with those symptoms would have been X, Y, Z. And now they're saying this, this, and this, and it, those inconsistencies can lead to a lot of frustration. And I guess, you know, it's depending on the personalities, you know, animosity, bitterness, you know, you do catch more flies with honey as they say you, if you go at it, you know, even if you're feeling frustrated, if you attack someone and s- treat them like you're you know you're stupid, you don't even know what you're doing how how you know you call yourself a doctor and you're you didn't even know this or you call yourself a nurse and you're doing this or this, that is no you're not going to get the usually the response that you want from that person,
1: right, yeah, well, and you know to go back to what you were saying as far as you know when you're advocating for the person that you love and especially if you're a healthcare professional, you're going into that situation, bringing your experiences with you because that's all you know. And so if you've been in a situation as a healthcare professional where you've seen those symptoms, like you say, and you're like, yeah, they did this and they found out it was that. Uh, and Google is dangerous too. So you don't even have to be in healthcare because of Google, you know, you Google things and you're sure this is what is going on. And then, you know, when you're met with, um, resistance from the, uh, providers or, or just with them not knowing really what's happening, um, it can be really frustrating. And, uh, I agree that it, it's a lot easier to, um, Catch the flies with honey, as you say, and <laughs> to try to be nice, but but I can see where, you know, if if it's your person that you're advocating for, especially your child, um, that frustration is going to continue to escalate until you are really going to be pushing back and demanding answers, especially if you're paying for that service yeah. as well. You know, it's not just you're frustrated because something's going on with your child, you're seeing your child in pain. But you're going to doctor after doctor, and this adds up. It starts to be very costly. So there's a there's an emotional impact, there's a financial impact, just all the way around. Uh, if somebody has the type of personality where they're they're going to start to be more vocal, that's that's definitely going to happen in this type of situation.
0: Yeah, and in this case, as many parents would do if, if they had the resources to be able to do it, they just continued to take her to specialists and doctors until they finally found a doctor, Dr. Anthony Kirkpatrick, who was a specialist in a disorder called complex regional pain syndrome or CRPS. And he diagnosed Maya with CRPS. And at the time, I believe she was about 10 years old, 10 or 11, 10 or 11. Yeah. And there's video of Maya in doctor's offices. You can see her feet sort of like almost foot drop like they they were kind of going going down um she wasn't able to to walk without severe pain. You could just see it in the, in the video. It was very obvious you know that this girl girl was in a lot of pain and my heart would just, you know, break watching her and then watching her parents, basically just trying to search for answers, and how relieved they were to find this doctor who was able to bring them some, you know, some help. CRPS brought my unimaginable pain, magnified way beyond normal levels, any beyond any kind of pain that you can really imagine f- is the way that they describe this. The gentlest uh, uh, touch would become unbearable for her, excruciating. So Dr. Kirkpatrick recommended a treatment that offered some hope, and it's using ketamine. So you can imagine a, a drug like ketamine I- in a hospital setting is definitely not something you would associate with using Uh, on an an outpatient basis, you know, outside of the hospital, on a regular basis, it just it's, I know, when I first saw this, I was surprised, I was shocked. I'd never heard of ketamine being used this way before.
1: Now I have heard of it. I've heard of it. Oh, so we use it in hospice now. Yeah, it's not very common, but it's becoming more, uh, more prevalent. I have two experiences with ketamine, which made me really kind of be like what when we started using it in hospice or for humans is that it is a horse tranquilizer and in the 80s they actually there was a movie called perfect victim where this guy was administering ketamine to these women which would incapacitate them make them have hallucinations and then he would do things to them Mm -hmm. we didn't give a trigger warning for anything else today so i won't say what he did to them but use your imagination and then i was a vet tech for several years and we used it to sedate our cats for spaying them. And when you inject it, they just go wild. Like for 30 seconds, they would just go crazy. We would have to hold them down until the medication sedated them. So when I first started hearing about ketamine being used on humans, it was surprising to me. And and now I feel like, you know, it is more commonplace in hospice. So I wasn't you know, I I have heard of it being used for humans, but I the the uh, way that they used it for her, you know, putting her in a medically induced coma and administering it in high doses, um, that was something unusual to me that I had never yeah. heard of. And it was
0: something that was not really done in the United States. So he he told the, uh, her parents, you know, she really needs this treatment. Um, He said, you know, at a high dosage, it works wonders for many CRPS patients, but they had to go to Mexico where this special treatment could be done, where they would put her in a medically induced coma and administer the ketamine over several days. And it's, I can't even imagine deliberately being Put in that state. We talked about before on this podcast about ICU delirium and how dangerous it is for patients to be um, intubated over extended periods of time and to be sedated and intubated over extended periods of time, how it causes PTSD and all all sorts of problems. So, that part of my education and understanding was going, Oh, that sounds terrible, you know, to do this to her. But thinking about the excruciating pain that she's living with. And if this is a, a way to hopefully relieve that. And it did, uh, you know, for a while it did. Then there was a doctor, Dr. Ashraf Hanna, who prescribed a lower dosage of ketamine that she would be able to get um, in the United States and be prescribed on a regular basis that she would um, would take. And so that's what she was doing. She So she went to Mexico, had this treatment, and then she was taken ongoing, taking low doses of ketamine on a regular basis that was keeping it at bay. So on October 7th in 2016, Maya's condition began to worsen. And basically they had a hurricane that came through. And I don't know if it was the stress from that or what happened, but that was what they associated with this change. It's like this big hurricane came through and then suddenly she had this acute exacerbation of her CRPS. So they had to rush her to Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital. This is in Florida. So the doctors there were not familiar, not surprisingly, they were not familiar with Maya's RPS. It's a very rare condition. They definitely were not con- uh, familiar with this ongoing treatment of ketamine. And they were very concerned uh, when they see this young girl taking ketamine on a regular basis, and then coming in complaining of pain that seems to it to them, they don't understand the condition they, let's just say, sometimes in in, in emergency rooms and in hospitals, on both sides of it, the, the pain issue can be very controversial. And you have healthcare providers who get frustrated from seeing seeing people who come in who in their minds are quote, just looking for drugs. And then you have people who you have patients who are coming in, who are in excruciating pain that you cannot see, you cannot visualize, but they are in pain and they' They are looking for relief from their pain. And so you have these, this pull, you know, this kind of fight in betw- between the two entities. And on both sides of it, you have sincere people, you have genuine people, I, I feel like it's just a battle, an ongoing battle, um, and it can be very frustrating. And I I try to see that from both perspectives. And you you know you just use opportunities to just discuss it. Let, let's everybody just talk about this. But I always like to remind healthcare providers, healthcare professionals, that when your patient tells you they're in pain, then they are in pain, and it is not your place to judge how they're acting, whether they're scrolling on their phone, whether they're talking to you, whether they're talking to their family, whatever coping mechanisms they may be doing that they, their pain tolerance has built up so much that they are able to do those things and yet still be sitting there in excruciating pain. And I, I say that total respect, complete utmost respect for healthcare professionals that work in the emergency room and that work in hospitals. I've never worked in an ER. I don't think I could. And so I appreciate you so much. I really do. I appreciate what you have to go through. But as just being as sensitive as I possibly can, I just encourage you to think about that when you're caring for people and try as hard as you can to um, have compassion for anyone who says they're in pain.
1: Yeah, we say pain is what the patient says it is. Believe the patient.
0: Um, it's just hard to do. and I,
1: can, I get it because I did work in the ER for... A minute, like three months, and I understand how you can become jaded because there are people who come in who are drug seeking, but there are also people who go to the ER because they are literally, actually, really having pain. You know, and and I think you have to always have the mindset of believing people until you have concrete evidence to do to believe otherwise. You know, believe they're in pain until you know for sure that for some reason they're there and that isn't really legitimately pain driven.
0: Yes, absolutely. Because that
1: does happen. It does happen and I get the frustration. But I also think there are signs of that. You know, there are people who are the frequent flyers that come in often, you know, and and now we have the national, uh, drug database that doctors can look in to see where people are going. And you can check and see if somebody is doctor shopping or going from ER to ER and getting pain medications prescribed. So there is a little more, um, accountability there for that. And, um, I think in this case, they definitely jumped the gun with, with this, Yes, girl, and, and
0: it's a child. We're talking about a child. Yeah, it's a child. It's yeah. not a
1: drug seeker. This is a child, right? exactly.
0: I I feel like what they were doing was not necessarily jumping to oh this child is drug seeking, but they were they immediately went to oh her mother is a nurse, and if you are in healthcare, especially a nurse for some reason, you're going to be under suspicion if. If your child comes in with some sort of mysterious illness and and they can't explain it right away, you're going to be under suspicion for Munchausen by proxy because it's something that does happen. We've talked about those people on this podcast before too.
1: They also accused the child Maya of attention seeking. That was a part of it as well. That that was an and I think that also uh, in the, in the ER when people come in is not necessarily from my experience, thinking that they're drug-seeking, but sometimes it is attention-seeking too, that that they think somebody is there for to get attention.
0: We all know that when we're taking any medication or supplement, dosage matters, and it's important to take enough to get the desired result. For example, only taking a 10 milligram Tylenol might not help with your headache. Well, the same is true for CBD. If you try a low-dose CBD product, you may not feel anything. But it's not the CBD's fault, the dosage is the problem. This is why CBDstat only makes high-dose CBD products that actually work, and now their products are getting even stronger. CBDstat is happy to announce that they're launching a new extra-strength version of its highly popular topical products that have 7,500 milligrams of CBD. affordable. And don't forget all you healthcare workers out there get a special additional discount to help keep you strong. Just head to cbdstat.care forward slash healthcare and find your new secret weapon. That's cbdstat.care forward slash healthcare. So her mother Beata was very outspoken. She just kind of was very direct. And when she talked to people is from what i Gained from the interviews that that were on the the documentary that we that I watched about this story, she was very direct and just would kind of tell it like it is. And so I could imagine someone who even on a normal basis is sort of that kind of person in a situation where they're frustrated because they feel like their daughter's not getting the medical care that she needs, and that the medical professionals are not understanding and not even listening and not taking you seriously. So she starts fighting for the continuation of this ketamine that Maya is supposed to be taking. And that basically led to a misunderstanding that would change the, their lives forever. It's very, very tragic. So there is a doctor by the name of Dr. Sally Smith works in this area. And she is a child abuse pediatrician. So she does, handles all, most, if not all, of these cases, um, at that hospital. And I think at other hospitals as well in the region. So after she kind of did an, an examination of this, this case, she decided that it was, uh, it would be prudent to separate Maya from her parents. So they hospitalized Maya and they pretty much accused Beata of Munchausen syndrome by proxy and of course, for those of you that aren't aware, that is a disorder where a caretaker fabricates or exaggerates symptoms in a child. They may even deliberately give them, whether it's uh, medication, they might give them Benadryl to try to make them uh, you know, seem sleepy and groggy. They may give them sodium, which is horrifying. I, I did a story of a, a nurse who would give put sodium into her child's feeding tube that uh Yeah, so just really, really tragic situations. It definitely, it is a real thing that does happen. And so I applaud uh, doctors and nurses and healthcare professionals for being diligent and aware that these sort of things go on and trying to recognize them. However, in this particular case, They really did not take into consideration, this doctor, Sally Smith, did not take into consideration the evidence that was provided by Dr. Kirkpatrick and completely disregarded his diagnosis of her CRPS. Just did not, just acted like it wasn't even relevant. So in this documentary, so the name of this documentary, by the way, is Take Care of Maya. It's on Netflix Excellent documentary. I really enjoyed watching it. It's one that you'll, once you start watching it, you're going to, you're not going to want to quit. You just, it's, it kind of keeps you, it's very gripping. So in this documentary, Jack, who is Maya's father, was just devastated, of course, by this situation. He sort of narrates this whole journey following Maya's state custody. So the hospital claimed that Maya was improving once she was hospitalized. So she came into the ER, she's having all these symptoms, complaining of pain, unable to walk, unable to sometimes even move her arms. After they hospitalized her and separate her from her parents, they are claiming that she her, her condition was improving. So the anguish multiplied when Beata discovered that the social worker assigned to Maya had child abuse charges against her. And took unauthorized photos of Maya. In other words, an, not anything inappropriate, but she was taking just photos. I think she was probably trying to prove, like, look, she can, uh, she can sit up. Look, she's standing. Look, she's she's appears happy. That sort of thing. But they were, she was not supposed to be doing that. And then to think that you separated this uh, uh, this little girl from her parents. And the person that you put with her to kind of be her advocate or overseer, kind of like, you know, her personal guardian, has a history of child abuse charges. That's kind of disturbing. Mm -hmm. I would be upset about that as a parent. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Didn't make any sense at all. So
0: this whole thing... um, went out went you know, it's playing out over um, several months, she was hospitalized. And I believe she was hospitalized around um, October. And she was in there for several weeks, all the way through Thanksgiving. At one point, they went back to court to discuss whether or not they were going to be allowed to see her. And Beata asked the judge, can I just give her a hug? she wanted to just be able to give her a hug because she had not even be, been able to be in the same room with her for weeks she could talk to her on the phone in a very limited capacity the advocate had to be there and it was for a limited amount of time that she could she could talk to her and she could only discuss certain things she could not ask her about she couldn't ask about how she was doing as far as medically and what anything that had to do with her condition she was not able to discuss now maya's father was able to go and visit. They they did allow Maya's father to visit her. And so but it he could not just show up. He could not just go and be there whenever he wanted to. It would have to be planned and he would go there for a limited amount of time and be able to see her. Can you imagine being separated from your parents as a as a child in a hospital of all things for weeks and w- which turned into months, actually 3 months and how and how the the parents must have been feeling I think that Beata's personality being as strong as it was there were times when Jack her husband and Maya's father would get frustrated because he felt like Beata with her strong personality was not uh, playing nicely and I think he I think he recognized that she was trying to advocate for Maya but he wanted her to do it in a different way because he felt like it was not helping the situation. It's, it's the kind of the impression that I got, you know, from, from watching the interview with him. Unfortunately, the unbearable weight of the situation really took its toll. And three months after the custody hearing, Beata tragically took her own life. She went into, but basically, they were at home. She was at home with her. They had a, a son as well. who was younger uh, than Maya. And while they were at home, he said, he just, everything seemed fine. And then he and his son left. And when they came home, her bedroom door was closed. So they assumed that she was in the bedroom asleep, taking a nap. And then at some point later in the day, Beata's brother stopped by to, to check on her. And he said he walked into the garage and she had hanged herself. What Biata said, she did leave a note, and what she said was that the she could not go forward with the, the pain that she was having to suffer from being separated from her daughter. I mean, the whole thing was just uh, was obviously mentally and emotionally and every other way crushing to her spirit. And But I'll, I think that also not just like the, the stress of, of dealing with a child that's sick and not even necessarily the stress of this the situation, but then just the isolation that she must have felt because everybody around her seemed to be kind of turning, not turning on her, but just she's the only one being accused. Her husband wasn't even being accused. She's the one that's bearing the weight of all of this. And I can't. I can't imagine how difficult that would be as the one person who bore the responsibility of trying to bring comfort and relief to her and everything that she was doing was trying to help her daughter. I It's hard to imagine where, you know, where she was mentally and emotionally going through all of this and how frustrating it must be, must've been for her. And perhaps she did think, well, they, they clearly are not blaming her husband. They're not blaming Jack. So if I'm removed from the situation, maybe everything will go back, you know, to the way it was. Maybe she'll be reunited or somehow it will fix things. Obviously that's not true. It's not, you would hope that someone wouldn't think that, but I could see how in that set in that, you know, situation, how isolating it is. And you just kind of are in your own head, how that, you know, she could have gone down that path. And in fact, not long after she took her life, the judge did allow Maya to go to be reunited with her husband or or with um, Beata's husband or Maya's dad, Jack. So it's so incredibly tragic, but it, it's, it's almost as if what she was hoping for to kind of relieve the situation in a, in a, very strange way, almost worked. I mean, it didn't because it devastated. It absolutely devastated, obviously, their family, Maya, her brother, her dad. I mean, the whole situation is horrible and just so tragic. But that, you know, really, there was a pivotal moment in all of this. And that was when the judge, you know, the judge is a neutral person, and he's taking information from both sides, and is supposed to be supposed to be neutral. And in this situation, he's getting information from healthcare professionals from the other side who are saying that Beata was doing this intentionally. And then he was also hearing from healthcare professionals on on Maya's side that was saying she has this syndrome. And for some reason, decided to listen to the professionals on the other side. And he believed them and would not even allow Maya's mother to give her a hug, at the at the hearing, it it yeah, that seems was, as that though was, yeah
1: that was very inappropriate, damaging. Uh, I mean, uh, in so many ways because it could have been part of what what triggered Biata's suicide, but also damaging to the daughter, dam- damaging to Maya. Like not considering her feelings in all of this, and I think that's. You know, that's part of the tragedy of this story is that um, they just disregarded how this lengthy hospital stay would impact her. And, uh, you know, she was also, she was aware, it, it seemed, in the hospital that she could hear the nurses talking. She was aware that they thought that she was acting or you know seeking attention they didn't believe her she heard all of that and and all of that is just so emotionally damaging and then for the judge to deny a hug from her mother you know she's never gonna she said i, I will never get that back i will never have the chance for that again
0: yeah it's it, it, i can't imagine a more tragic story it's it's absolutely devastating shocking i don't know. Any other way to describe it. She was, Maya was able to get physical therapy uh, once she was released. And even though obviously it can't replace the loss of her mother, it did help her regain her ability to walk. Media coverage of their story revealed a disturbing pattern involving Dr. Smith, as numerous families came forward and shared similar experiences. These families talked about how agents of the hospital would put pressure on them to comply with a case plan, which would absolve the hospital of liability. So basically what was happening is people would bring their child in, maybe it's a, a broken bone or some kind of illness, the ER professionals that are there with doctors, nurses, whoever, it would be something that would strike you know some suspicion in their mind that they would think we 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 have to call about this this is you know something that could potentially be abuse i would not i don't blame them at all you have to advocate for children you have to advocate for for victims of child abuse i've said that so many times on this podcast i would never be against that then once they refer the case then this pediatrician dr smith would get involved but what is interesting is that once this happens, they want to develop this case plan, which is basically for the context of this story, it's, it refers to a formal document or agreement that outlines the actions and steps that have to be taken by the parents involved in this uh, child welfare case. And it typically, it's typically developed by Child Protective Services or the Department of Children and Family Services. And they collaborate with the family and the, and the healthcare professionals and other professionals involved. And it's designed to ensure the child's safety, well-being, and overall best interests. And it includes specific goals and objectives that have to be achieved, such as addressing any concerns or issues related to the child's health, education, emotional needs, or living arrangements. The plan may involve various services, interventions, or therapies that aim to support and strengthen the family unit. So, in other words, they recognize there's potential abuse. they get a social worker involved they get the department of children's services involved they invest they begin an investigation and then they tell the parents it's looking like we there's enough evidence here to to accuse you of child abuse we 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 think that you did this on purpose now that's not a conviction that doesn't mean that they would be that they really are abusers that they really did abuse a child it means we have enough evidence that we would lean toward the side of that you you did this on purpose. And instead of going through all of the legal proceedings, they would have to go through to get that off their plate, and not only just get through it. What if they're found guilty? What if they? What if the court just decides you you really are a you know you did abuse your child, and their your child's taken away? permanently or you're you're you go to jail. So they offer this case plan and they say you could we can go through all the legal proceedings or you can do this case plan. And they kind of talk them into agreeing and once they do that they're basically saying that they did it. They're basically saying I'm going through with this to try to keep this child from being abused again. So you're you're sort of admitting guilt. guilt. I mean, really yeah. And it takes the, it takes all of, it completely removes any sort of accountability or responsibility from the hospital because the parent is taking on the responsibility and they're saying, yep, I did it. So in all of these cases that were coming forward, the parents w- agreed to the case plan. That you can imagine parents who don't have a lot of resources, they don't, they can't afford to buy or to hire an attorney to help them get through court proceedings. They don't even understand the process. They are completely, they're scared. I I can understand being scared in this situation. So they agree to this. But in the Kowalski's case, they had resources, they were able to, and they had a very determined mother, you know, Maya had very determined parents who stood their ground and insisted and would and refused to admit admit or say that they were abusing their child or doing this on purpose. Uh, They, of course, which is ridiculous, because they they literally had a doctor and a specialist who said that Maya had this condition. So very frustrating situation, even in watching the documentary and, and just hearing about these other people. That doesn't mean that every single one of the cases that that were out there that they even talked about on on the documentary were definitely not child abuse. If you you look at it, the number of cases that this doctor, this pediatric um, child abuse doctor, the number of cases that she finds were child abuse are a lot higher than other areas, apparently. So that's sort of suspicious. The fact that in this particular case for Maya, you have this evidence of her having you have video evidence of her clearly in pain There's no evidence whatsoever that the mother is giving her anything that would cause this kind of pain. I don't even know what you would give someone anyway that would cause those symptoms. But there is no evidence that anything like that is going on. Maya is clearly old enough to talk for herself. That doesn't necessarily mean that she would that she would. You know, victims oftentimes can be manipulated and just would protect their abuser. Totally understand that. But there is no evidence that anything like that was going on, and yet this this doctor just kind of dug her heels in. And the judge believed her.
1: And the medications that she was giving to Maya were prescribed by a physician. She was giving legally prescribed medications that had been ordered by a doctor. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't taken into consideration either.
0: I know, it's so frustrating to see this. I, I I feel like, you know, I I really appreciate journalists for doing the hard work that they do and digging up these stories and really going and doing the interviews and looking into the details. Because there's so many, there's so many times when situations like this come out, and you just we can't I, I i'm just flabbergasted that a situation like this could occur it doesn't make any sense at all that some that one person would have this much power over people's lives and just there there's too much child abuse that does go on um for parents of good parents of uh, who are trying to do what's best and right for their children are being accused of Of harming their children, are are going to be afraid to come forward and get medical attention for them, for fear that they're going to be somebody's going to think they're abusing them. It's this is so frustrating on so many levels.
1: Yeah, what's yeah, that was frustrating for me to know that, you know, these are these are parents who legitimately wanted to seek help for their children. They weren't abusers, and they were accused of that. Some of them even went to jail. I think one of the fathers ended up in jail for a year or two years. And yet there are cases that we hear about where children are abused, it's reported, it's reported, it's reported, it's investigated, and nothing ever happens. And then the child is ultimately, you know, seriously harmed or killed by the parent. And DSHS did nothing about that. In this case, however, it wasn't a state agency that was investigating the hospital contracted with a private agency and I thought that that was pretty significant as well there may be some beneficial monetization going on there that I I think if they dug deeper they may even find out that you know I don't know if they had some kind of a bonus program for this doctor or what but it did seem like uh, there could be some questionable uh, financial, Implications when it came to the number of cases that this doctor was bringing forward.
0: Wow, that's unconscionable. I can't even. I can't even imagine that. Despite the pressure to comply with the case plan, which could have absolved the hospital of liability, the, Kowals- the Kowalskis, as I said earlier, stood their ground. The fact that they did not agree with the case plan, and together with Beata's meticulous documentation of Maya's medical history, she she wrote everything down. We know these people like they these family members in the hospital that literally are writing every time you walk in the room they're like nurse walked in the room you know like writing every single thing down and it makes people nervous sometimes but if you're not doing anything wrong you sh- you know you're just doing what your job you're just walking in there giving a medication that's that's ordered or you're walking in there to check on them or or whatever but uh, there yeah there are some people that will literally write every single thing down and that's how, exactly how beata was so she made very meticulous notes They did not agree with that case plan. And because of that, they had the weapons that they would need to fight back against the hospital and take legal action, uh, despite the odds against them, of course, going up against a big hospital like this. Their case is scheduled for trial in September of 2023, allowing them to pursue punitive damages. So they went through a lot just to get to this point, because it wasn't a given that they were going to be able to seek punitive damages and so they had had to have a special hearing, and it's been it's really taken its toll on this this family. Jack and his uh, and Maya and her brother they are exhausted. They, I'm sure, would just like to be able to move forward, to be able to grieve you know properly, and not have to worry about all this stuff. But they cannot, I, I don't believe just just from the impression that I got from from the interviews and in the documentary, I don't believe that they can do that without feeling like they did everything that they could to honor their mother's memory and make sure that at least something good comes from, from what happened in in all of this. And I, I feel like just the documentary alone is huge. The fact that they were, there's no way that could have been easy for them to discuss the things they had to discuss and talk about it and dredge all of that up. But the fact that they did it is bringing so much awareness to these situations. So I'm super so proud of them for for being able to have the strength and the courage to do that. And so Dr. Smith did settle her portion of the lawsuit uh, apparently already. The Kowalskis, they do reside in Florida as I said earlier. They're continuing their ba- battle for justice not only for themselves but for the countless families who have suffered similar fates. Maya, driven by strength and determination, strives to honor her mother's memory and help others trapped in this grueling struggle. Her story was featured in People Magazine and several other news websites, and it sheds light on her painful medical condition and the tragic events that led to her mother's suicide. She recounts the severe pain caused by her rare neurological disorder and the misunderstanding that labeled her mother as an abuser. Through unimaginable pain and loss, her resilience shines as she fights for justice and strives to make the most of life, embracing the legacy of her mother's love and determination. I just wanted to highlight, you know, just Maya's strength and her determination to, you know, use the situation to at least honor her mother and and like I said earlier, bring something positive out of this whole horrible situation. So I have to tell you guys about an experience I had with a nursing student. So you know I've been doing travel nursing. Well, this hospital where I'm at has a lot of LPN students doing their clinicals there. So one of them was following me around one day, and she noticed my stethoscope. And of course, y'all know the Echo technology company that sponsors our podcast. They teamed up with Littmann to make the stethoscopes, to beat all stethoscopes, the 3M Littmann Core digital stethoscope. And this is the one that I use now. So she said, oh my gosh, I've been wanting to try one of those So of course I let her use it and she just could not stop talking about it for the rest of the shift. It was so cute. She was like, you know, I can't hear anything with my normal stethoscope because I have tinnitus. And so she was so excited because she could actually hear what heart sounds were supposed to sound like. She said, I'm going to ask for one of these for graduation. And I was like, yeah, you definitely should. So just so you know, the echo technology that makes the stethoscope so amazing. Uh, You can enable it with a flip of a switch. You can turn it on and off. It has active noise cancellation up to 40 times amplification, wireless auscultation using Bluetooth technology. It connects with Echo's free app and software so that you can visualize, record, share, live stream, analyze heart sounds, lung sounds, and whatever body sounds you want to listen to. So you can go to echohealth.com and use the promo code GNBN to get $50 off your order. And that's echo is spelled E-K-O, by the way. So it's echohealth.com and use the GNBN promo code to get $50 off your order. really interesting, uh, kind of a different sort of story, you know, than, than what we usually do. But I, I wanted to talk about it, because it's something that's not only is the situation something to be aware of, that, that this could be happening, this whole individual situation down there in, spe- you know, specifically regarding Dr. Smith, and, and what is kind of, you know, t- kind of shining light in that region. But also, Just sort of remind healthcare professionals that it's okay to have that kind of feeling in your gut and to be suspicious about something we have to be. We have to have that. But we also need to remain neutral and we need to not pass judgment on people. Think of Maya listening, you know, overhearing the nurses talking. That's patients here. That can happen a lot. Overhearing nurses talking. They can overhear you talking about other patients. And then they're thinking, well, if you say that about them, when you're in here what do you say about me you know just being professional maintaining that neutrality and that professionalism when you're with your patients
1: i also wonder how much implicit bias played a part in this as i watched the documentary biata was polish and she had a polish accent and maybe it's my own implicit bias but when i hear somebody who is very outspoken which she was she was very outspoken she was very much forceful in her, in her uh, communication because she was advocating for her daughter. But that accent even almost emphasized that in a way. And I think uh, culturally, Europeans are often kind of more direct and outspoken. And so I, I wondered if that was a part of how people reacted to her was because of how she came across as just being very you know, rigid and forceful. And that was, you know, met with resistance by the nurses.
0: I think that that did happen. I think it happened with doctors as well. There were some text messages that came out in the investigation between some of the physicians where they were talking about the mother and things that the the mother said. So I do think that her approach offended them you know, that that she was questioning them. So many times, doctors do not want to be questioned. They don't want to have their judgment called into question, especially a lot of times a nurse questioning their judgment because, well, you haven't gone to medical school. I'm a doctor. Who are you to question my decision to do this or do that? So you have that dynamic that could be playing into it. And then also when you have someone with kind of a forceful personality who's being very direct and being frustrated it was just a it was a a recipe for disaster it really was it almost seems as though you know that started it out and it it fed the the pursuit of the whole thing it's it's almost what it seems like like once Once everyone's heels were dug in, they weren't going to relent. They were not going to change their mind. And it didn't seem to matter what evidence there was.
1: They, They didn't like her calling and saying, this is what you need to do. This is what works for her. And again, that goes back to as healthcare professionals, we have to sometimes understand that our patients and their families see more than we do. Like they have more experience with what is happening in that situation, than we do. They're there all the time. They see those things, and they know, and they know it works, and they know what doesn't work. And you know, we have to to remember that as healthcare professionals when we're dealing with situations like that.
0: Absolutely. So I guess we can get started with the good nurse segment of the show. So as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, Penny's handle, I guess, is hospice nurse penny on social media. (laughs) So first, just to kind of tell everyone about your persona online, your hospice, this hospice nurse penny, what is that all about? And what do you use that platform? How do you use that platform?
1: Well, I am a nationally certified hospice and palliative care nurse. I've been a hospice nurse for almost 18 years. And, uh, you know, at the start of the shutdown during the great pandemic of 2020, I happened along TikTok and uh, and jumped on there and started, you know, looking at videos. And I've always been a bit of a performer, comedian, um, if you will. And uh, so it didn't take very long before I started kind of trying to do some of these silly t- TikTok trends, trying to learn how to shuffle dance. And one day I decided that I would tell a story about Hospice nursing about an experience that I had with uh, a patient while I was a hospice nurse, and it went viral, and I gained 10,000 followers at that time, which was huge. I had no idea that that was going to happen. As a result of that, I I just realized that this social media platform was a way for me to do something that I'm very passionate about, and that is educating about hospice and normalizing death and dying. As a hospice nurse, I've been with so many families when they were experiencing the death of their person and seeing things that we know are a normal part of the dying process, but that they had never seen before and it was scary for them. And once I told them that that was normal the relief was palpable. You know, people could really relax when they felt like what they were seeing is something that happens to other people at the end of life. So it just became a grassroots way for me to to do this th- that I'm so passionate about. And also because it is TikTok that I started on and I'm on all the social media platforms now, but being TikTok, there are a lot of silly trends, dark humor, dancing and that's kind of my jam you know I I really like to to do these different styles of education and it was well received by many not as good received by some others in fact I'm happy to be on the good nurse portion of your show because others don't always view hospice (laughs) nurses as the good nurses some of them uh actually uh think that we're pretty pretty bad but but um it really um is something that uh, resonates with with many of my younger followers. So so I do various styles of education. I do story time. I do Q&A, you know, answering people's questions. I do straight talk, I call it. And then I do uh, dancing and pointing to words on the screen. And I do dark humor, pretending that I'm dead to show people what dead people really look like, not like they look on TV. Uh, Those always actually go pretty viral when I do those. But so it's just been an interesting journey and an interesting way to, to help people.
0: I know when I first became a nurse, I didn't know anything about hospice nursing. I had only heard the word hospice associated with people who had really probably cancer, and we're at end of life, like the, you know, hospice meant that's it. And that it's the word was almost used to say this person, you know, is is dying, they're going into hospice. And it changed so much when I became a nurse and started working at the hospital. And I met hospice nurses that would come there and get but they were transitioning into home hospice. And I, I under, you know, started understanding what end of life care really is. And, and kind of really accepting the fact that, yes, we obviously want to have a, a beautiful birth and a beautiful life and a healthy life and be able to be be as healthy as we can while we're alive while while we're living our lives. But we also want to be able to have a good death. You know, we don't, I, I think it's so important. People don't want to talk about it. You know, they, want, they don't want to even, let don't even uh, entertain the idea that that's ever going to happen. It's just a coping mechanism, I think, for people. Yes, um, yeah. And they think that somehow comforting people are allowing them to have a good death, allowing them to be comfortable, allowing them to die with dignity, die the way they want to die is killing them deliberately like that that you are somehow facilitating their death and that is not the way it is at all
1: right yeah there are a lot of myths around hospice definitely one of them that's common is that it's it's meant for the final days of a person's life. And uh, that's one I like to bust. In fact, I've been occasionally doing a check-in video about Jimmy Carter to say, look at that. He's been on hospice for three months and he's still alive, you know, um, because people think, and, and honestly, the media perpetuates that because we see that, we see Oh, so and so famous person went on hospice, 3 days later they're dead. You know, and so I love it that Jimmy Carter elected the hospice benefit early in his end-of-life journey because he's a great example of how people should come on to hospice earlier. You know, the life expectancy for a hospice patient is 6 months or less. That is what makes them eligible for hospice, and I always emphasize it's the 6 months or less. It's not six days or less it's not six hours or less we want people to come on early because we have so much to offer and then we don't kick people off at six months if they continue to live if they're still you know declining and we expect them to die within six more months you know then we just go through this recertification process and people can stay on hospice for a lot longer than six months but the average length of stay the last time i checked with medicare was like 72 days which means that we get a lot of people on who don't live six months. And it's very, very unfortunate because, you know, to your point, uh, a good death is, is something that we should all strive for. You know, it matters to the person who's dying, but it also matters to the person who is, or the people who they are leaving behind. Those are the people who carry the burden of experiencing a bad death. When that happens, the guilt of, I made the wrong decisions, you know, and hospice can can help to alleviate that. They can help to guide the right decisions. They can, you know, help to uh, understand things like not doing IV fluids and why we don't want to do that. Uh, not not having a person be full code and doing CPR on them when their body is dying. And so, you know, I think it's really important to to get hospice involved early to facilitate that good death. But the other thing about accepting death and being able to talk about death and prepare for death is that it improves your life. You know, you you actually can live better if you don't have this taboo thing hanging over your head because, face it, we're all going to die someday and a lot of people experience death anxiety. A lot of people experience a fear around thinking about their own mortality it's very very common and once you can get to a place where you can just accept you know yes I'm gonna die someday there's nothing I can do about it I, it, I don't know how it's going to happen or when it's going to happen but I know it's going to happen and I don't need to perseverate on that I don't need to be obsessed with that I can just let it go and that makes uh, living my life more fulfilling uh, and not having that that burden of worry present all the time
0: yeah I we don't think we talk about it enough. I don't think we educate enough about it. And we probably even as healthcare professionals wait too long to even recommend it and start talking about it to patients. But a lot of times patients and families, they don't want to hear that word. So I, there, there's it's like turning the Titanic around. You. I mean, there's a lot <laughs> of education that has to been relearning that has to happen, you know, before we can improve the whole death and dying process, really. I've seen enough bad deaths myself working in the hospital on a PCU floor for many years and a CVICU floor, that I know that is not how I want my end of life to go. And it starts by understanding your disease process, what you have going on with, with your body, and what, what your, op- your long term options are. And what what is going to happen? what is inevitable that is going to happen because of this that you have going on if you understand that, like, so your kidneys are shutting down, you can do dialysis, and this sort of thing, but it is not going to prolong your life, or it may prolong your life, but it's not, you're not going to ever go back to this, this normal that you know, now, you're only going to continue to decline. And it's going to maybe buy you this much time, but it's you're going to go through a lot of of suffering, a lot of pain, discomfort. Your quality of life is, you know, just just understanding that. Really understanding that your length of life is one thing, but the quality of life is a completely different thing. So I don't want my life to be longer just so I can be on a machine in a hospital room in a hospital bed. Right. right. I mean, that's how I mean. That's I feel. not
1: living. <laughs> It's not living
0: that's how I feel about it and I I I feel like everyone should have the right to make that decision for themselves that if I don't want to be kept alive by a machine I should not have to be I should be allowed to just go peacefully and comfortably because there are medications that as uh, hospice nurses and and we do this at the at the bedside as well that we can give they're not hastening the death they are if anything just helping to manage the symptoms that you're having because you are dying they're helping you rather than feeling short of breath and like you're going to like you're you're just suffocating it can help relax the airway and help relax the blood vessels and help get more oxygen so that you feel, can feel more comfortable during that time that education is so important for nurses to have and for nurses to pass on to their patients and their family
1: members Well, everybody has the right for that choice, but they also have the right to be appropriately informed. And I think that is where the medical professionals drop the ball. And in their defense, they're not taught to have those conversations, especially doctors in medical school. You know, you're not trained like. I don't know about you but in my nursing program I had an hour lecture about hospice. It's all about making people well, making them better. There's nothing in there about how to talk to somebody about the fact that they're dying. And and that's where we where we really fail in healthcare. Because yes, patients and families they don't want to talk about death, but it's important that we do and there is a way that you can approach it with them that's going to be less traumatizing and to your point about getting a diagnosis that you have a disease that's ultimately going to be terminal, that's when the conversation needs to start. Not when you're at the end and they're like, by the way, now you have this long to live, right? It should start in the beginning, like, just so you know, this is what we see with this. This is eventually going to be a terminal condition and this is ultimately what is going to contribute to your death. Most likely, you know, if you die a natural death because of this disease, you start the conversation earlier. But There's also ways to approach those conversations, such as, you know, asking people what do they understand about what's happening, you know, open ended questions and feeling like how much do you want to know? How much do you want me to share with you? There are ways to have those discussions. And that's what healthcare professionals need to start learning how to do.
0: Absolutely. Well, Penny, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking with me about these important topics. Remind everybody where they can find you.
1: I am on TikTok, obviously, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And my username on all of those platforms is at Hospice Nurse Penny. Thank you for having me on.
0: Oh, you're absolutely welcome anytime. And of course, you can find us at goodnursebadnurse.com and you can email me at tina at good nurse, bad nurse Love to hear from you guys. Absolutely love it when you send me emails and messages. And I've, we're on social media as well at goodnursebadnurse. And of course, I always want to remind you before we go that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse.